As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everybody and welcome back to another episode of wings for breakfast our twice weekly red wings podcast here on the athletic presented by bet mgm i'm max boltman with me as always is prashant Iyer. the red wings are now midway through a four game series with the dallas stars they lose last night four to two goals by valtteri Filippola and dylan larkin larkin looks a little banged up toward the end we have no update on that uh, as of now but prashant uh, what stood out to you in the two games, first two games of the series, both of them being in Dallas? Well, um, in case you were having any concerns about the Red Wings playing themselves out of a play, out of a good um, draft position, I think you can set those aside. Um, they looked pretty bad at times in the Tuesday game against Dallas. Uh, you know, I think at one point down 4 nothing, really... You know, the shot totals may have been relatively similar, but at each of Dallas's first three goals were literally tapping goals on the doorstep. You know, I even the fourth goal was as well. I felt bad for Jonathan Bernier because they're one-timers across the crease, and there's just absolutely no opportunity to do it. Just terrible defensive breakdown. So if you had any concerns that the Red Wings were all of a sudden going to be good and play themselves out of a, a solid draft position, I think I think you can put those on hold for now. I don't know. They actually are in a worse spot than they were when we recorded last time. I mean, let's just be real. We can't control Columbus. Columbus is in full-on tank commander mode. Max Domi's getting scratched the last two games. Patrick Laine looks like a disaster. They, I don't know what they're doing at this point, but Columbus very much tank engine is rolling. Yeah, Ottawa's the only team in the uh, in the bottom seven, bottom six, uh, that has like won lately. I mean, it, it, Buffalo has actually won a couple of games, but they're so clear far and ahead at going to be uh, the best lottery odds that it doesn't matter. So it's you're looking at Anaheim, you're looking at New Jersey. Uh, those two teams have lost three and seven games, respectively. Columbus has lost seven straight games. 
Uh, Red Wings have lost three straight, but uh, you know, it, it, as as things as this goes, I, I feel like the Red Wings are probably not getting into the bottom five. Which again, that's fine. Like that's that's what people we're going to look at this year uh, as progress. But I just think it's you know set your expectations there. If you think you're getting a top five pick, uh, you are probably not. Yeah, I mean. The thing that at least is maybe working in the Wings' favor, if you are considering, you know, if you're very much worried about this top five pick, they've got games against Columbus. So if they have three more games left on their schedule against Columbus, if Columbus wins those games, um, and and let's be frank, that Columbus has been good at home, atrocious on the road. I believe two of the remaining three games are, actually all three of the games are in Columbus. Um, there's a chance that, that Columbus takes those and, and they jump right back in front of Detroit. Um, you know, I think it's worth stating that we've talked about progress from the Red Wings. They have the second worst goal differential. Their goal differential is yes. worse than Buffalo's. Yeah. In fact, they're just one goal differential away from being the worst in the league. Anaheim is the worst at minus 47, and then Detroit are, and Columbus are both tied at minus 46, and Buffalo's at minus 45. So, you know, again, don't don't erase any notion that of this still being a pretty bad hockey team, but uh, there's still very much room for potential because Detroit's closing schedule is still two more games against Dallas, another game against Carolina, albeit they've been very good against Carolina, three against Columbus, and you've got uh, two against Tampa. So this can very well end up being a a one and eight or one and seven finish for the Wings the rest of the way. I put the over under uh, for Columbus's rest of season at one and a half wins last night, um, specifically because I think they're losing every game except for who knows what happens in the Detroit series. That one could be a toss up, a split, which is how I arrived at one point five with those three games remaining. So uh, we'll see what happens, but uh, I I don't know. I think people's concerns on this one, and again, they're warranted in the sense that I really do think the Red Wings are are not going to pick in the top five this year. Uh, they are warranted in that sense. I think people are, are right about that. Um, but I also think, you know, again, it, the difference between picking four or five and six or seven or eight, who knows what it's going to be. Maybe it could be big. Maybe there's a player at four that, that you really love. Um, my guess is in this draft, especially uncertainty wise, um, I, I think you're probably okay there. I do think there's a kind of a top three for me, but uh, they're not getting there. So. Yeah, and and again, you know, we said it on the last episode. I think it's it's clear that uh, I don't think you could be certain enough about any one player to be dismayed about falling into seven or eight in this draft. Where right, conceivably, there's a lot of di- there's a lot of talented hockey players here. It's just it's very hard to separate them, and it's uh, you know very difficult to really project how good some of these guys are going to be. You know, we talked about how maybe this is potentially a lower ceiling draft than last one. I think that's still debatable, but ultimately you end up at seven or eight. I still think you're picking a good hockey player. I also think, you know, this, the Red Wings are now in a really interesting situation of the rebuild, an interesting moment of the rebuild where um, they have made a ton of picks in the last few years, especially the last two years. And not one single player from those two drafts is uh, in the on the team yet. And Moritz Sider will be, 
before too long. Um, only one player from the 2018 draft even is, is with the team yet, and that's Philip Sedina. So it's a kind of an interesting moment in the rebuild where they've made a lot of their picks. They've actually arguably, I mean, depending on how some of these guys shake out, it's, it's conceivable that they've already made a lot of the picks that are going to make up a lot of this team, but they have not arrived and they're most of them are not about to arrive. Um, so in, in a, in a year and a half to two years, I think you're going to see, um, a lot of those guys arrive and, and that maybe will make it feel a little more, uh, youth movement-y kind of in the mold of what, like you'll see with the Pistons right now is, as all those guys are, are into the league and starting to make their impacts. Um, but that's not right now. And ultimately I, I think you probably see cider, maybe some Valeno, uh, next year, but I, I still think it's, quite possible that next year does not feel totally youth movement either. Yeah. I mean, it, it sort of depends on how you want to proceed with these prospects. I think you could make a strong argument that outside of cider and Valeno, you still have potentially three um, players who you could make a strong case that they are NHL ready on day one. And that would be Lucas Raymond, Jonathan Bergeron and, and Albert Johansson. I think, you know, Johansson has quietly put together two very good seasons, um, including that really strong 12-game finish to his draft year, getting drafted, and then coming back with a really nice season the year after. Um, you know, I think he's done a really nice job. Uh, he looks like a heck of a smooth skating defenseman. He's played, you know, in the SHL, scored at times one of the best rates in the last six or seven years. You can make a case that you know, hey, he warrants consideration on day one. Jonathan Bergeron, finally healthy for a full season, basically goes point per game in the SHL as a dynamic playmaker and just doing it in, in kind of like 14 or 15 minutes of ice time a night. Uh, so it looks like a heck of a, um, you know, a heck of a hockey player there. You can again make the argument that maybe he starts in day one. So I think it sort of depends kind of how you want to proceed here. I agree, Max. I think the most likely scenario is probably just Cider and Valeno, but I don't think it would be wrong. And I think so. I wouldn't completely rule out the possibility of a youth movement if you get that kind of aggression from Eiserman, but I think it really comes down to what he wants to do uh, with all of the unrestricted and restricted free agents he has. Well, I've heard people say this before, and I, I think it's kind of a, a little bit of a guidepost, which is that the NHL is not a developmental league, um, is kind of the refrain, right? And that does not mean you, you can't develop in the NHL. Um, certainly every year, teams are, are counting on guys to develop in the NHL. But I think the the application of that kind of mantra is that you don't put a guy in the NHL when you think he could hang at that level, when you think he can, you know, keep up, when you think he's not going to get, you know, badly injured, when you think that, you know, he can find some plays. You put him there when you think he can really contribute, when he can really make a difference, or when he's just simply not being challenged in the right ways at lower levels anymore. Um, that, I think, is kind of the guiding principle that I have heard, and I do think there's some merit to it, um, partly because, you know, the, the main topic for our show today is going to be about, um, you know, how NHL philosophy, coaching philosophy does or does not affect kind of offensive development and creativity, the merits of, you know, the, the kind of defense-first structure that the Red Wings play uh, in, in at this point in their rebuild. Um, and I think this is part of that conversation because, uh, as, as we're going to get into, 
if you are moving your young players up and asking them to uh, to try and keep you competitive in games, um, I, I do think that the demands of doing that aren't always such that they can kind of finally, uh, you know, play around, try new things in a way that I think you're more likely to see, albeit not totally likely to see, especially in pro leagues. Like, you know, the SHL is, is the top league in Sweden. Um, the... Uh, American League, while I think you know it is a development league, um, you know they're, they're, you're still going to be coached in ways that that uh, you know also are trying to emphasize getting you ready for the NHL and and in that way. So, um, but I I just think the the creative things that you can try in those leagues are still uh, greater than what you can probably get away with trying in the NHL. Um, right or wrong, but I I think that that's a consideration here. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly been the, the history of how players get promoted, particularly in Detroit. I mean, you know, there's been this concept of over-ripening in the AHL, you know, really waiting until, you know, the players kind of knocking on the doors. I mean, Ken Holland used to always say that we want them to really blow the competition out of the water in the lower leagues, you know, before working their way up. You know, I... I sort of take some affront to the concept that the NHL is not a developmental league. And that's because I think people really overstate how much you can develop in lesser leagues when you have less team control, Mm. right? I mean, you're not going over to the SHL saying, hey, I want you to specifically work on this aspect of Mo Sider's game while you are not like a part of my organization or anything along those lines. Sure, you know, these teams can provide some feedback to the coaches and things like that, but those those teams are not obligated to do anything of that. They're there to win hockey games. I mean, you know, they're they're not interested in saying, okay, I'm going to give 17 minutes a night to Lucas Raymond because you told me to. It's I'm going to do what I think is best for my hockey team to win here. And so really the time when you have the most control over these young players and their development and the specific things you want them to get better at is at the NHL level. And so my sort of opinion is if they're demonstrating proficiency at lower levels, whether it's the SHL with Bergman being a point per game guy at his age, Albert Johansson being one of the top scoring defensemen over the last several years, sure, you can bring him over and go to Grand Rapids where you have maybe a little bit more control, um, you know, with your AHL affiliate than you would over in the SHL. But still, the end goal for those teams is to win, right? So my personal philosophy would be bring them up when they're younger, avoid letting them seed those bad habits that they can develop and get away with at lower levels and therefore make it a little bit easier for them, you know, to learn those habits at the NHL level around more talented guys. There is a caliber of player that I'm okay with that thinking uh, surrounding. And that would be, I, I would put Lucas Raymond in that, in that category. I, I think if they want to start him in the NHL next year, um, they can justify that. I think Jonathan Bergen, if they want to move him to the NHL next year, um, you know, being he's going to be 21 years old next year, um, having multiple pro seasons under his belt, even though two of them were very short pro seasons because of injury, I think you can justify it. Um, I just also think, especially with in a, in the case of of those two players. Um, it's going to be an adjustment already moving from the amount of space that you have on that ice. Do you want to make that adjustment uh, even more difficult by adding NHL pace to it? And I'm not saying that 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 should be uh, a deal breaker, but I'm just saying that I think that's a real consideration. If you're already going to be um, speeding up the, the play of the game and, and the 
you know, the, the, phys- the inherent physicality of having players closer together on the ice. Do you want to add that with the most powerful, fastest skaters in the world too? Um, I, I think it's a real conversation. I mean, I, I just think that there, there is a case for working guys in at the American league level. Uh, it's kind of tried and true, but that doesn't mean you do it because you've always done it. I mean, if, if you just, if you look at Lucas Raymond and you say, Hey, Philip Zadina spent, uh, you know, half and half in the AHL and the NHL his his draft plus two year. Um, and if you think that, that Philip, uh, Zadina, you know, had to do that because he didn't have the pro experience that, uh, Lucas Raymond has, then I think that's fine. But I, I also think you can look at the, the two and say, if Philip Zadina, benefited from doing half and half why wouldn't lucas raymond i think it's a real conversation at least yeah i i sort of get i get the line of thinking from a general manager perspective i think where i push back on is let's let's just throw an analogy out there sure i love playing nba 2k it is my favorite video game to play should i practice playing the opponent on pro to get better at playing on superstar or should I just play on superstar and learn the tendencies there? Because if I practice playing on pro, all I do is I take Shaquille O'Neal and I can block every shot and I can just back them down and I throw that lob pass in and it's great. But as soon as I go to superstar, that lob pass isn't available. As far as and I'm aware, there's it. two levels between pro and superstar. There are. There are, right? But I mean, here's the thing, right? Do you think the gap between the AHL and the NHL is equivalent in that regard? I mean, this is just a a simple example, but I don't think you have the same stepping stones, right? When we've looked at NHL E or kind of how points translate, we consider the AHL to be roughly half the level of the NHL. It's a monster difference. And we heard Philip Zadina talk about this. It's a different game when you're out there. And so I get the idea of making the transition easier by bringing them over and saying, okay, we want you to start this at the lower level. But at the same time, do you then kind of embed bad habits that don't translate to the next level when there is such a stepping stone from the next level. And then particularly with the SHL to the AHL, we're talking about two leagues that are pretty close to equivalent by most measures. I think you make an argument the AHL is a little bit stronger, but the makeup of the AHL from a player's standpoint is very different. It's not close to the NHL. It's almost as if you're taking reps on pro to then try and play on superstar. At least that's how I feel. And the tendencies that you try and develop at that pro level just don't work when you move up to superstar. And I'd rather take the guys that have the talent, that have demonstrated the proficiency. So you're right, not everybody should do this. Yeah. But I think Bergen Valeno, or Bergen Valeno, Sider, Raymond, and Johansson have all demonstrated proficiency at a top level like the SHL. I don't see the need in, in kind of putting him in another level adjacent where they're not going to develop the necessary habits. One thing I would say about this does not apply to Cider at all. Cider should be in the NHL um, today if he was able to be. Uh, And I I would say Valeno should be probably, probably too. Um, The physical maturity of the NHL and and the demands of that, especially on like a Johansson, maybe a Raymond who just missed a lot of time after getting injured from a hit. Um, and you know, Bergen's a little bit older, a little bit stronger, a little bit thicker than, than these other two guys. So maybe he doesn't need to be included in this conversation the same way he is physically shorter, but, um, height isn't kind of maybe as important as strength in this case. Um, I I think you want guys who are physically mature enough to handle the rigors of the NHL too, to have a prayer in a battle. Um, because it doesn't, I don't think it does anyone any good to just be out muscled and overpowered and have no shot in a board battle either. Um, now 
how much weight should you put in that? Totally open question. I, I get that. I mean, I, I think it's probably the most important for Albert Johansson as a defenseman. Uh, I think you can, you know, I, I watched Jack Hughes play a year in the NHL and, you know, he did not die uh, as a very, very skinny, small player. Um, he also wasn't as effective as, as, as he would have been at any other level at that time. And I think you can make a case it was good for him. And I think you can make a case that it, you know, it, it was a little early for him, but you know, he turned out because he's Jack Hughes, right? It's not, it's, it's okay. I don't think you can really truly screw up a development of a, of a guy like that, or even a guy like Lucas Raymond, by which level you assign him to. Um, I just think there, you know, especially as you get down into that conversation about like a Johansson, that's a guy I would slow play more. Um, than I would, you know, certainly a Valeno, a Cider, a Raymond, and uh, and argue, arguably a Berggren at this point. You know, I I have to disagree with that, and that's because I think, with, and, and again, I'll, I'll preface this by saying you have to have a certain mental makeup of a hockey player to be able to do this. But for me, as that kind of player, I would want to see the gap and the challenge and know the work that I have to put in in order to be better. Right. I'm not going to get that appreciation. And sure, you can tell me I need to hit the weights. I need to be working on this conditioning. But if I'm routinely beating these guys at the AHL with where I'm at, is the incentive necessarily there or the understanding of the amount of work that's necessary really and truly there when you are getting by on your raw skill? And so if you take these guys, you drop them in the NHL love and you go, oh, shit, this is a fast game. That guy is coming at me and I I had half a second less than I thought I would. And you start to recognize, okay, that one step that I had at this level doesn't get me by this guy at the NHL level. This is the work I need to put in. I'm going to hit the gym. I'm going to hit this conditioning regimen. To me, if you have the right mental makeup of some of these hockey players, expose them to that early. Let them get that work in. Don't seed those bad habits uh, that, you know, hey, you can get by just on raw talent here. And that's going to be just fine if you do that with them at the lower levels. So that's my big push here is you're a rebuilding team. Use your NHL team. Teach these guys what the gap is between where they're at right now and where you think they can be and let them experience it firsthand. It's real hard to do that just watching video and playing against a league that's half as good as the one you're in. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, so the other side of this conversation gets us more into um, what the topic of the episode today is going to be, is when you get to the NHL, you're going to be asked to play 
uh, according to kind of the style of the team. You're gonna you're gonna have to do you're gonna have to play how the team plays by and large. Um, obviously, hockey is a fluid game. This is not the NFL. You're not calling plays between every play. It's not even the NBA where you're calling out specific actions that are gonna make it work. It's a fluid game that happens in flow, and for that reason, uh, I have to say I think the the in game coaching impact. Uh, of the of of uh, in hockey is less than in in those sports or even in baseball. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would I would agree. I think uh, by and large, I don't know that NHL coaching has the same impact as it does in other sports from a system standpoint. Yeah. However, we have talked on this podcast before, and this is a conversation that's been happening um, on in our comment section at the Athletic. Seems like every day for like two weeks now. So I finally sat down and spent about three hours in the comment section on my story on Joe Valeno today, um, having this conversation with people. And I thought, you know what, let's just have this on the podcast today be the episode um, about the merits and the drawbacks of playing the way that the Red Wings play and developing players the way that they develop players, which is oftentimes they want everybody to be competent um, in every zone. They want everyone to be able to play the full ice and they don't want anybody to have situations where they can only do this or only do that. Um, that does not for the record mean that they cut every player or trade every player who is not a quote unquote 200 foot player, um, you know, or, or a, or a defensive, uh, specialist, right? Like, like you have players on the roster right now who you wouldn't call defense first players or, uh, or who, who you actually, I would call offense first players. And that would be Robbie Fabry, Jacob Vrana. These are guys who do not have great defensive impacts. Um, and yet they're two of the Red Wings, you know, top six forwards when they're healthy and they get prominent deployment. Um, however, as you, as you're developing players, you will notice that the Red Wings do ask a lot of their players to, to try to, to make their game as complete as possible. Um, and, and I think, uh, that is an idea that from what I can gather, uh, from, from our, our subscribers is starting to get frustrating to people who seem to not like that, that offensive players are asked to, uh, to, to think about that when they're on the ice and as they're developing. So, you know, this is a fascinating argument, and I'm glad your comment section brought it out because, you know, I think I texted you this exact thing maybe we, two we weeks ago. Last week, yeah. Um, you know, I think I'll start by saying I think what Ryan Hanna tweeted on uh, Twitter a few weeks back really resonates here. And it's what his tweet said was uh, We've ruined the 200 foot player, really, Scotty Bowman, and this narrative about Steve Eiserman converting and becoming a 200 foot player and then winning three championships has ruined this concept of needing to be a 200-foot player. And I think that really resonates because Steve Eiserman, by the time he was doing this in 96, 97, 97, 98, guy's like 33 years old already, right? He's already slowing down. He is past his prime. He is starting to age out. He's going to play hockey a different way. He's not got the same speed. There's a conversion that's happening there, you know? I think it's very much an overblown narrative. And as a result, you've seen a lot of coaches kind of take on this mentality that we need to shape these players into these 200 foot hockey players where they have to be able to play, you know, in their defensive zone in the offensive zone, you know, neutral zone. They need to be able to forecheck. They need to be able to do this and that. The problem that I have with that is it's taking every shape you've got. It's your circles, your squares, your triangles, and you're going to take the hammer and you're going to smash them into this one specific mold. And that's the issue I sort of take with this, because I think that really got an o that overblown narrative has allowed kind of these coaches to kind of run rampant with, we need to shape every player into this 200 foot hockey player instead of sort of embracing 
the nuance and the different attributes and the different skill sets that a lot of these guys bring um, and allowing them to sort of utilize their talents to the best of their abilities as opposed to taking whatever shape they are and then smashing it into this one mold that you have. I just disagree that you're smashing it into a different mold. I mean, it's almost like you're just making the peg sturdier to me. I mean, more so than like literally changing the form. It's, It's like you're making it a more broadly effective peg. You're not, you're not narrowing its effectiveness. If anything, you're making it something that can fit more holes. You know what I mean? I mean, I I sort of disagree because I think at the system level where we see coaches shape uh, these players is this is where we want you to be on the ice, you know, from a formation standpoint. So forechecking, okay, if you've got F1 in on the forecheck, this is where F2 should be. This is where F3 should be basically making the reads for the players. And I think, number one, that sort of takes away some of the instinct for some of these guys where it's like, hey, you know what? I bet if like this player is going to be able to jump in and win this battle more often than another player because that player's instincts are a little bit better. And I'm going to trust that player to be able to jump in on that four check and not kind of force them to sit back in this F3 position that's high and let the play come to them. They are an offensively gifted player that if they get in on that four check, they're going to win that battle. But their position is by the system to sit back. So it sort of takes some of those instincts and reads away from the player that may be gifted in that particular attribute. And, you know, you see the same kind of thing happen in in power play reads, kind of directing where the puck should go. When you just sometimes let these guys play to really quote Mickey Redmond and allow them to bring out some of those instincts within a framework, I think you really embrace some of those talents. Like, But what do you, you know, think, what do you think Red Wings players right now aren't allowed to do because of the framework? So, yeah, I think, number one, you don't see them forechecking to the same aggressiveness. So Detroit's forecheck is actually pretty relaxed mm-hmm. um, right now. It's almost like a one-two-two kind of setup to be far more defensive-minded. You know, you flip on, go ahead, flip on a Carolina Hurricanes game and watch how aggressive they are with their skilled forwards coming in two on you. Mm-hmm. It's almost a two-one-two. They're very good at uh, basically taking lanes away from defensemen forcing that pressure. They use their immense skill to retrieve the puck and it's bang, bang plays. They're the highest scoring team in hockey because they have that skill. They Britain Moore really preaches that aggressive forecheck. He allows those guys to get in after it. You're not having Philip Zadina sitting back and waiting for the play come to him because there's another forward back in there because the wings are so concerned about being that defensively sound structure. Another example I'll just give you when we're talking about skills Dylan Larkin's got blazing speed. He is the fastest kid in the NHL. When's the last time you saw Dylan Larkin use his speed? Uh, Yesterday. (laughs) I mean, mean, but like being able to consistently use the speed to transition from defense to offense and then being able to be empowered to play more aggressive offensively because his speed allows him to catch up defensively Mm -hmm. as opposed to sitting in that framework. That's sort of the issue I have. I mean, you're still talking about the forecheck here. Yeah, I'm just still talking about the forecheck, right? Like, Larkin's got to sit back as opposed to, hey, if you let Dylan Larkin get in as the second man on a forecheck and really kind of clamp down on options, I trust him and his speed to get back and be defensively responsible. I do not have to force him to sit back as the two, give up that outlet, but let the play stay in front of him because he's a guy who can catch the play from behind. Zadina is shown to be really proficient at not only catching the play from behind, but stripping the opposition of the 
the puck as well. So it's some of the decision making that players can have, some of their instincts that they may be able to take advantage of. And frankly, some of them having just better skill sets than others. It's taking every guy and forcing them to play within a certain framework that almost caters to your lowest common denominator. And that's sort of the coaching that I have a problem with. How unique would you say that that um, framework is to the Red Wings? Because Barry Trotz, I think, is kind of universally regarded as the best coach in the NHL. And I don't see a ton of philosophical difference between how the Islanders want to do things and how the Red Wings want to do things. Yeah, I think, you know, broadly speaking, the framework is is somewhat consistent at the NHL level. I think there's certainly a few exceptions. I think you Rod mentioned Ritter Carolina more, for sure. Right. For I sure. think Toronto. he's an exception. I think Toronto's an exception. Uh, and I think Tampa's an exception. You know, John Cooper's done a really nice job of getting a lot of offense out of his guys. And frankly speaking, the guys that are exceptions are the guys that have, you know, really fun, high-scoring hockey teams that tend to do really well. Obviously, chicken and egg between the talent that they have versus the talent developed by the coaching staff. But you can see, again, just bringing Sheldon Keefe in, what he's done to the Maple Leafs that were kind of stuck in this Mike Babcock, you know, very conservative system that yeah. that the Red Wings played for a while when Babcock sort of had to convert as Datsuk and Zetterberg started to slow down. But even in the early years of Babcock, I mean, he let Datsuk and Zetterberg play far more free. They were far more aggressive um, with the 2-1-2-4 check as opposed to going to that 1-2-2. Um, so it's just, it's little things like that. And I mean, broadly speaking, I, I don't disagree with you, Max. I think this is consistent across the NHL. I mean, Igor Larionov in his Players' Tribune art, uh, article several years ago said this, that a lot of the guys who end up going on to coach in the NHL don't know how to coach high skill. They They just know how to beat in this system of defense, 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 because that's what they could do. That was their skill set. That was the level they understood. Now, that's not to say that you need high skill guys behind the bench to do it. Wayne Gretzky sucked as a coach. Um, but Rod Brindamore is a heck of a coach, and he yeah. was a heck of a hockey player. And he was a defense first player. <laughs> and he, well, again, I think that narrative gets overspun. The guy was uh, a hundred point player for many okay. years in Pittsburgh. He was a Selkie right? winner. How about that? Yeah. He, he knew yeah, the value so. of defense. That's what I yeah. mean to say. Yeah. 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 So, but yeah, obviously, you know, again, similar narrative that when he comes to Carolina in 06, um, you know, he was able to lead those guys all the way to the cup. But, um, and I should correct, I didn't mean to say uh, to Pittsburgh, I was conflating him with Ron Francis there, but he was still a heck of a hockey yeah. scorer, um, you know, in that own regard. But, I guess that's the point I'm making is a lot of these guys want to take everyone and take them down to the lowest common denominator. It's almost a system catered to your Luke Lindennings, your Darren Helms, your, your uh, you know, Adam Ernie's, although Ernie's more talented than those other two from an offensive standpoint. It's catered to that lowest common denominator. Yeah, I mean, you, you said a minute ago it, it's how they want to play because it's what they can do. I would tweak that and say it's what they want to do because it's what anyone can do right? Like that's the whole premise behind playing that style is that if you are like, let me, let's go back and run through the teams that we just talked about having the, the, the better forecheck, the more aggressive forecheck, right? And by the way, I want to make it know here that we're still talking about just like forecheck here as being the key difference. It's not like saying don't deke or, you know, don't shoot the puck or right. don't yeah, look for that's, a scene That's pass. trivial stuff right. here. We're exactly. talking about system right. specific. So here's what I noticed about those teams that you mentioned. Brett Pesci, Jacob Slavin, Dougie Hamilton, Brady Shea, Victor Hedman, Eric Chernak, Ryan McDonough, Mikhail Sergachev. 
I mean, like we're talking about two of the on, on two of those three teams, two of the best defense scores in the National Hockey League. So what's one of the keys to getting more aggressive on the forecheck and taking more of those risks and and being willing to have two guys low below the dots rather than one guy below the dots, one guy at the dots and one guy up kind of honestly as a third defenseman? Uh the best defensemen in the NHL are kind of the difference, right? And the Red Wings don't have that. And so, um, again, I'm not saying that, that the the two one two. I, I don't know hockey systems well enough to to break it down probably for you. Um, but the way that you just described it right there sounds kind of like my ideal approach, right? Like like you want multiple guys behind the puck, you want pressure on the puck, you want to force mistakes, and you want to trust that you're going to recover from mistakes. Um, better than than your opponent is going to be able to capitalize on them. Um, I think that is the approach that I would have if I could pull it off. Um, what, one thing that I would say is one reason why I don't think the Red Wings could take that approach is because they kind of can't. Dylan Larkin could. Uh, I think Philip Zadina could, although he doesn't have Larkin's speed. Jacob Verona could um, because of his speed. The Red Wings also don't have those guys that are going to be able to buy them the time as just defensemen, as just that back end to allow them to do that. Would I be off base if I said that? Well, so I think the the counter that I would provide to that is, you know, you talked about what Cooper's done in Tampa. You talk yeah. about those guys in, in Carolina. And this is the unanswerable question. Would those guys be who they were if the coach did not put them in a sure. system that empowered their best abilities, yeah. right? You know, that's the thing. Does Victor Hedman become Victor Hedman without John Cooper? We don't know. And that's that's the question we can't answer. That's the thing we can only speculate. And that's why we have these conversations. Is yeah. we, we don't know how to separate how much a coach has done to shape a player. And I think that's the crux of the argument here is if you took somebody different and you put a Rod Brindamore behind, does Dennis Chalowski develop differently? Yeah. Dennis Chalowski is a hell of an offensive defenseman. But when you watch him out on the ice, he sometimes appears lost. He doesn't seem to have the right idea for what play he should make with the puck, where he's supposed to be. Sometimes you catch him second guessing. The system that the Wings play is simply not conducive to Dennis Chalowski's game. I agree with that. And so so it's like if you so this is what we end up measuring for Dennis Chalowski, but if he develops in an offensive up tempo team where he's empowered to take those rushes and recognize that he's got a support system behind him uh, from that kind of support structure with the forwards covering, does he develop differently? So that's that's kind of the uh, internal sure. question I'll come back to you on, is like, do those guys become the defensemen that they are without having this kind of system that brings out the best of those abilities? Well, I would say most of the guys that we talked about on Carolina and Tampa, yes, because like you're talking about guys who are shut down D-men, you know, Pesci, Slavin, McDonough, Headman, like those guys could all be like, you know, elite defensive defensemen too, I would say. Um, Chalowski, I think is interesting though, because that would be where we get into the Toronto conversation. Because I think Dennis Chalowski in Toronto looks a hell of a lot more like first month of his pro career, Dennis Chalowski, uh, than Dennis Chalowski for the last week. Um, I mean, I I have felt like, I've thought about this over the course of the year. I, I think when people talk about Blashell as a developer, one thing that I sometimes have a hard time getting my mind around is, okay, well then how did all these guys who have only had him as their pro coach um, become really, really good NHL players if something about his scheme or philosophy or something like that is such a hindrance. But I would say the most notable counterexample of that 
is Dennis Chalowski, who is a guy that in his first month in the NHL, uh, I thought looked outstanding and like he was going to be a serious offensive NHL defenseman. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I, you know, I, I certainly don't stand by this two years later, but a name that kind of popped into my head at that time was like a Jake Gardner. And it's kind of perfect that that's a Toronto guy, right? Because um, Jake Gardner is a guy who was able to do a lot with the puck and, and, and at a lot of offense. Um, and I think he, although he was often coached by Babcock, ironically, um, I think he's a guy who would be successful under the Sheldon Keefe, uh, you know, coaching administration. I don't know what you want to call that rain era. Um, so Chalowski to me is the kind of counter example to that kind of what I usually say, you know, when people ask about like Blashell is developing is like, well, most of the guys who are good right now have only played for him. So I don't know that you could say it's a hindrance, but you bring up the counterfactual. We don't know what they would look like had they only ever been coached by Sheldon Keefe, had they only ever been coached by Rod Brindamore, uh, had they only ever been coached by John Cooper. Like, we just don't know what, what that would look like. And um, to me, I, I feel like Dylan Larkin is a player who he has not scored as much this year, but I, I feel like he continues to get better as an NHL player. I still look at Philip Zadina and say he's a better player than he was uh, when I saw him two years ago. He's not scoring as much as I thought he would, but is that because something has gone wrong or because I was wrong two years ago. And I don't know the answer. I don't know if there's a way to know the answer, but Chalowski is the one guy who I can look at and say, I thought he was, even though he was not as you know sound defensively two years ago, I still thought he was a better overall player uh, in that first month of his pro career than the impact, or at least making a bigger overall impact um, than what we've seen since his, in, in, you know, this season from him in the NHL level, in the AHL level, he, he's been borderline dominant. Yeah, and he's the guy that kind of stands out to me. I think a couple other guys I would throw in there is uh, certainly Evgeny uh, Svechnikov. But injuries play a really mystifying role in that. It's a confounding variable to me. They they do. So for for him as well. Um, But I mean, other guys that we've seen, you know, here struggle. I mean, there's been a handful over the years, um, you know, that the Wings have not necessarily maybe gotten the most out of. Uh, You know, Gustav Nyquist, after having his monster break-ins, breakout season seemed to sort of take a huge step back under Jeff Blaschel. Um, you know, Nyquist's breakout season was 13-14 right before, um, you know, Blaschel took over. You know, Tatar was a guy who always looked good on paper, but you didn't necessarily get to see as much offense come out of him. He goes to Montreal. You see a lot more offense coming out of him. Um you know, it's, it's tough. Like that's, and that's another guy, you know, Andreas Athanasius may be a classic example of this. Well, the guy was all, all offense and sure Mm -hmm. you can't win with some of the stuff he was trying to do, but at the same time, you know, forcing him to con, you know, basically kind of subscribe to the system. I do think had a significant impact on his development when you really had a game breaking talent uh, a guy that, you know, 30, 30 goal scorer did it under Blaschel for sure. Yeah. That 18, 19 season, I think you saw maybe the best out of Blaschel's coaching, if you will. I mean, that's where he got Larkin to be a, a 70 point player. Athens, he was a 30 goal scorer that season. Um, that was maybe Blaschel's best coaching job. But I'd say over the last two years, as the talent has sort of made its exodus, it's become harder and harder for me to see these guys taking steps forward. And then again, the other un- in- unanswerable question is: you just don't know how much better these guys would be uh, in a different scenario, or what their ceiling would look like. Like we talk about Dylan Larkin being a better player, the guy this season is having the worst season of his career. 
by, by measurable statistics from a goals above replacement per 60 standpoint, he's actually almost two standard deviations below the mean, which is effectively almost replacement level. And it's, Okay, but are you going to argue that he's a replacement-level player? I'm, no, I'm not going to argue that because yeah. I think he's got way more than that in him. But what, at least what we're measuring that what he's done this season is nowhere near what Dylan Larkin can be. And we've seen what Dylan Larkin can be. He's a far cry from where he was last year. And the reason I'm bringing up Larkin specific is half the questions in our mailbag are asking yeah, yeah, about yeah. Dylan Larkin's performance. But his it's absolutely cratered this season even though we continue to say, yeah, I like that aspect of his game. Yeah, I liked that aspect of his game. Fact of the matter is the results he's getting are awful compared to where he's been previously. Okay, so, so, but this is where, like, with the counterfactual, right? Like, so it's Blaschel's fault that Larkin is worse this year, but it was in spite of Blaschel that he was better every other year because it's the only coach he's had. Yeah, so I'm not saying that. I think what I'm saying is over the last two years, I think you've seen Jeff Blaschel's system become more and more rigid. I think uh, particularly early on, he was a little bit more open. You know, they used the stretch pass a little bit more. Uh, you know, they were a little bit more aggressive. And maybe that was because he had the talent where he felt like he could. Mm-hmm. You know, 18, 19, he still had a lot of talent on that roster. I mean, that team was bad, but they weren't like god awful bad. And then, you know, you hit 19, 20 and you have a lot of exodus of talent. Um, you know, like Athanasiu and and such, like not playing as well and kind of moving on um, at the trade deadline there. I mean, you maybe he's tightened it up to the point where you're now seeing even less of that kind of ability from Larkin. But to me, Dylan Larkin does not look like the same offensive player that he looked like two years ago. And again, you either have to say, is that Dylan Larkin or has something changed in the system that's more made it even more rigid because I think it has become more rigid. Because I think that's the only way that Blaschel perceives his team can win hockey games. Which well, I is, think that's true. I mean, right, I, and that's I think how that's he's true. evaluated. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's how he's evaluated at the end of the day is wins, um, at least globally speaking. So it's tough. But to me, I do think over the last two years, development has sort of gone south. And while there are things that I like from some of these guys, I don't know where to point the finger. And I don't know that you can point a single finger. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Yeah, to me, um, this conversation is probably best had without the word Blaschel in it, like broadly speaking. You know what I mean? Because like we could talk about Athanasiu and Blaschel. Jeff Blaschel played Andreas Athanasiu more minutes than Andreas Athanasiu has gotten since he left. So it's not like, you know, there was a there was a Jeff Blaschel mission to keep Andreas Athanasiu down. He was giving him more minutes than he's getting now, right? Like, um, and, and I really think that people have so 
hardened in their opinions on Jeff Blaschel one way or another, um, that it becomes a, if you say defense is good, you say Blaschel is good. And if you say Blaschel is good, you must be run out of town kind of thing, right? Like that's not really the, the point here to me. The point here to me is should, should the Red Wings, as they, as they, you know, work through this rebuild, emphasize defense with young players, um, should it happen, whether it's in the NHL, whether it's in the AHL, whether it's in the SHL, whether it's in the OHL, whatever it may be, how much should they be telling their players, I want you to think about this? And I think there's really good arguments in each direction. I mean, when you when you do get to the NHL level, the conversation, I think, to your point, is a chicken or the egg. Like, was this the, is this the system that the Red Wings think is the best system and they're going to sabotage the individual offensive totals of their players to achieve it? Or do they think this is the only way that this group of offensively challenged players has a chance to be competitive after watching this group of offensively challenged players get rolled seven, you know, every 57 times last year, something like that. 54 times yeah. last year. Yeah. A lot of times. Yeah. Many times. Um, and, and said, okay, this is going to have to be what it's going to be. It's going to, you know, it's going to take some sacrifice on offense, whatever, whether it's Jeff Blaschel making that call or someone else is not really kind of, in my opinion, the, what the conversation should be about. They're going to, Steve Esmond's going to do whatever he's going to do with Jeff Blasher this offseason. He's either going to bring him back or he's not going to bring him back. But there's enough coaches that that have this idea about um, defensive responsibility as a cornerstone, uh, about, uh, you know, taking what's given, that regardless, I mean, it's two of the names that people talk about for the Red Wings coach, if Jeff Blasher ever moves on, Gerard Gallant and Lane Lambert, I am sorry, if you are someone who is saying that, that you want to replace Blasher with Gallant or Lane Lambert, you 100% cannot come into a comment section and say uh it's all about you know it needs to be all about offense and taking out the the defensive accountability take what's given attitude you can't say that if you're talking about these coaches who lane lambert's mentor is barry trotz so when we talk about i i think the much more productive conversation here is does the is the two one two better than the one one three not that we'll ever have a say in that but because I think that's a much more productive conversation because it actually is actionable as what's causing the offense because it's way too easy to look at the coach and say the coach is the one who makes you know these eight players good uh or these eight players bad I don't think that's happening I do think the coach has an influence on what the point total is but I also think the players have an influence on uh, on that too yeah I think we'll we should start by first saying, you know, we'll reiterate the point from the beginning that I think the perception is that NHL coaching from a system standpoint maybe has the least impact across yes. the major four sports. So yes. we'll, we'll restate that when we're talking about the argument. The counter that I'll bring back to you is my view of a, of a coach, regardless of what sports you're playing, mm-hmm. is their job is to extract the greatest sum of their parts, Right. So at the end of the day, you are given a lot of different parts. Your job is to extract the greatest value from those parts. And what that means to me is that there is no one system that should be run. There is no one system. There is no one right way to do everything. Everything is dependent on the parts you have. There's, you know, you can take, and and maybe there is an argument against this, you because you look at Barry Trotz, he wins in Nashville, he wins in Washington, he wins in the Islanders. Clearly what Barry Trotz is doing works because he continues to win everywhere. Um, But at the same time, I do think a lot of what you do should be dependent on the parts you have. And I think it's most evident in the NBA 
when you see the Golden State Warriors, why is Steph Curry not shooting every single ball? The guy just went 50-50-90, scoring 40 points uh, a night for the month. That is the plan. You do that. Just run pick and roll for Steph Curry. You change your system to fit it, right? You have Shaq on your team, right? You know, you have Ovechkin. Play Ovechkin two minutes on the power play. Nobody else does that, right? You put him on that left face-off dot, and he's going to score and he scored 700 times. And that's because you have that piece that's just different. And so from my standpoint, I don't like the idea of taking this one system must fit all as your pieces evolve. And that's not an indictment on Jeff Blaschel. That's an indictment on every hockey coach. That's an indictment on every coach in every league. I believe systems should be tinkered to fit the parts you have in order to extract the maximum sum that you can get. How would you and measure that maximum sum? So that's a great question. Is it wins or is it player development? Uh, who's to say? I mean, I don't know how you, my personal view is I'm okay with maybe a net uh, decrease in wins in the short term if it means a longer gain in the long term how would you from player that? development, from player from wins in the future. So it's all wins mm. here. Yeah. So, you know, if I take, if I'm looking at like maybe a three-year moving average of wins and I take, you know, 10 fewer wins this year, but then make up for those wins the following two years because I got the player development that I wanted or I tinkered the system to be able to fit it, um, then then that's my measurement. But at the end of the day, wins is all that matters here. And so Blaschel, I think that's why he's done this system is if he can make the his lowest parts, you know, the the be able to play hockey at a competent level and be able to come out neutral where you're getting guys like Glenn Denning scoring two goals and, and Ernie having his heater, uh, eight game point streak. Like if you're getting that, then, then potentially it allows you to stay competitive in more hockey games. But to me, you got to tinker your system to fit the pieces you've got in order to extract the maximum value from as many people as possible. I think that's fair. I mean, to me, whatever system you play is the one that gives you the best chance to win. And I hear what you're saying about, for a rebuilding team, it should be what gives you the best chance to win when you can win. Um, and, and maybe not so much on Tuesday night, right? Like I, I think there's very much something to be said for that. Now, if you do that, um, you got to have real confidence that either if, if you're the coach, you got to have real confidence in your job security that, that the, uh, management is going to actually let you, um, when, when those players become ready to, to win a different way, uh, is going to be ready to, or, or sorry, when those players become ready, is going to let you be the one to, to be the coach then, or you have to be just absurdly selfless to a level that I don't know if many people like that exist, that you're just going to go in and develop these guys to win at some point without you. Um, or you're going to have to kind of try to strike a balance in the middle there, because we kind of know that, you know, coaches get fired when they don't win. And that actually hasn't happened to Jeff Blaschel. He had the worst season of the salary cap era, you know, was coach of the team of the worst season of the salary cap era last year and did not get fired. Um, and then this year, I think they were more rigid. I think you are 100% spot on with that. I think it's a reason that they've won more games this year. And I think it's a reason that the point totals are down. And I think it's a real uh, evaluation job by Steve Eiserman now to decide, is it worth it? Is it worth that? And And to me, one of the big questions is, do you think that all your players are better for being, uh, you know, kind of more responsible, able to kind of force turnovers, able to, um, you know, suppress offense better so that as you get more and more talent in, you have that core of players who do that? Or do you think they're worse because 
Uh, they don't maybe have the experience on, on the more aggressive forecheck. Um, they are more uh, used to working through a structure than playing instinctually. Uh, they're worse off for those reasons. It's a real conversation. I am not at all here to dismiss it, settle it, anything like that. I am nowhere near smart enough to do that. I just wanted to kind of respond to the idea that defense prioritization, uh, number one, is unique to the Red Wings here, uh, or number two, can't lead to offense because there's a lot of teams and a lot of really good teams who are, I I would say, prioritize defense, prioritize keeping the puck out of their net, and it leads them to score. Carolina, one 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 of the many ways they score is by being a hell of a penalty killing team. And they, I think Allison Lucan refers to this as the power kill when Columbus does it. I love that, um, that phrase. And, and to your point, it's about aggressiveness. Um, and, and that's not the conservative approach that the Red Wings play. So to me, you know, but you're still having to have players that you really, really trust guys who you would call 200 foot players to be on the ice at that time to pull off something like a power kill. And then you deploy it in a more aggressive way. So I, I don't want to sp- – I mean, I know you have to get out of here in like five minutes, so we're not going to spend any more time. We're actually not even going to get to the mailbag questions today. So sorry to everybody who listened, but I think Prashant worked a couple of them in there anyway. Um, I, I just think it's it's a much more complicated conversation in some ways than I think it sometimes get treated as. Um, and it's also at the same time a much more like nebulous conversation that it gets treated as, unless you really simplify it down to stuff like the forecheck, you know, how, how tied to the structure are you, that stuff. Um, but I also think it, it's really just kind of a philosophical thing of how do you look at success in hockey? How do you look at success if you're a coach in hockey and how do you blend all of that together? Yeah. I mean, I think you put it spot on. It's basically like if you wanted to have two people with PhDs argue about what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? I mean, you, you can have the argument all day and I'm, I'm here to listen to all the layouts, but at the end of the day, it's a philosophical thing with, is it the in, innate talent of these players or is it the development of these coaches and and how much does the system really impact you know the the floors and ceilings for each of these guys and and you know do certain systems do better with certain players and 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 so on and so forth i don't know i think you know i think where i land is um i don't think i think we're seeing the ceiling being lowered for a lot of the red wings skill guys um at the expense of raising the floor of a lot of the red wings um you know, grinders. And that brings you maybe a little bit closer towards a median, but that, and, and exactly like you said earlier, Max, I think it brings you to a system that everyone can play. Yep. And, and I think that's why Jeff Blaschel has done it. Um, right or wrong. That's my opinion. Um, I cannot give you anything to back that up or prove it. So you are free to take any other opinion you want, but I think it's important to recognize that this is not a problem limited to the Red Wings. This is not a problem limited to Jeff Blaschel. This is not a problem limited to hockey. This is a fundamental problem that exists across sports. And across life. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, very much so. It's, uh, you know, there, there's a kind of a comparative advantage thing in here, right, to, too, of, of like, you know, if you have if you have your, your Slavin, your Pesci, your Hedman, uh, your McDonough, you know, maybe you're a little more comfortable letting your skill guys off the hook in, in terms of how rigid they need to be to, to these things. Or maybe the way that you get your, uh, you know, your, your really high level skill guys is by letting them do it anyway. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, but I could hear arguments, really good arguments, both directions, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, really the only way you're going to get to that kind of option is when you have full 
organizational support such that the coach does not feel inclined that I need to win to protect my job. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. yeah. And that's right. And that's exactly what you were trying to say there is. So when the coach (laughs) feels inclined to win, to keep their job, you know, you're, you're going to be at odds when the organization wants better player development, but the coach needs to win to keep their job. You know, in Blashill's case, it certainly seems like he doesn't need to win to keep his job because if he did, then he would have been gone after last year. So this to me is the right time to say, I need to work on bringing the best out of Larkin. I need to work on bringing the best out of Zadina. Maybe I do need to open this up and let them play to their instincts a little bit more. Who's to say? I don't know if that leads to worse outcomes for both those players. Can't tell. But at the end of the day, that's an opinion that I'm going to have. And, and, and we all know what opinions are good for. <laughs> well, in this case, I think uh, your opinion is very well-founded. And I think that there's a lot of good stuff to it. Um, but it's the kind of thing that I think you and I have been having this argument in our text thread probably once a month for how long have we been doing this podcast? 16 months. You know what I mean? Like we, it's, yeah. it's not going to be settled by uh, today. Uh, it's, it's just a, it's a philosophical thing about how you look at the sport and how you look at, you know, growth in general. And so, I, yeah, I mean, basically one bourbon hits and I send Max like a, a paragraph <laughs> text about Jeff Blaschel's defensive system and all the problems with it. And then he has to respond to the PhD dissertation I've just offered. Usually not as eloquently, but uh, maybe I need to start having bourbon before I do. I think that'll I think that'll go better. All right. Well, thanks to everybody uh, for listening today. Especially thanks to all of our subscribers who jumped in the um, Valeno comment section with with just really I think outstanding um, perspective to to that to kind of inspire this for us today. Um, I I was in there for uh, no kidding two hours. I, I probably wrote more words in the comment section than I wrote in the article going back and forth with people about this. Um, and it, I found it all to be really smart, really respectful stuff. Um, and, and I just really enjoyed it. It was a great afternoon doing so. Uh, please continue to, to bring stuff like that into the section. I think it it just adds a ton to uh, everybody's experience. If you're not with The Athletic, um, I did not intend for that to be a lead into a plug, but it's going to be a plug anyway. Subscribe to The Athletic. I think you know, you're know you going to really enjoy the, both the coverage and being able to interact with with other really smart Red Wings fans on a a daily basis. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week.